and welcome to Cooking for Love, a podcast exploring the stories of people who cook from the heart, inspired by my nanny who taught me what cooking for love meant. I'm Kate Mobley and this week I'll be chatting to Penny Bielich, aka my amazing mum. My mum grew up in Durban, South Africa in a big family who loved to eat. After graduating from Stellenbosch University, she worked as a waitress at an Italian restaurant where her love for cooking grew. When her and my dad emigrated to the Isle of Man when I was four, she set up her own catering business called the Potty Peas. Cooking is a big part of my mum and I's relationship. We constantly talk about what and where we're going to eat, often planning out weeks worth of meals in advance for holidays or get togethers. When I decided I wanted to work in food, my mum was right there alongside me, helping me at my first supper club, coming to street food markets with me and helping me with ideas for recipes when I went into private catering myself. It wouldn't feel right to start this podcast without interviewing her. So without further ado, Penny Bielich, welcome to Cooking for Love. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to come along with you on this first episode. Thank you for joining me. Um, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. All good. Chilly, yeah, but lovely to see you. Yeah, it's very chilly. It was so lovely to write that intro and think about how much we both love food. Um, I'm not sure I emphasised enough just how much we talk about it, really. <laughs> I know, it is a big part of our conversations. Hmm. Yeah, mm. always love finding new recipes and telling each other about it what's before we dive in what's something you've cooked recently that made you excited it was actually sunday lunch this week we had a sunday lunch with a twist which was an indian food meal and i used all recipes from a book that you've given me it's called indian kitchen monica gawada gawada i think is, is that one and oh, I, I love that book. Yeah, on the inside it says, Happy Christmas, Cookie. Hope you enjoy this book as much as I do. Best recipes on page 103 and page 128. Um, so that's from you. And I did one of those, which was a, is a chicken, divine chicken curry. Um, oh, the one we always do. The one we always do. Mm-hmm. And then I did a doll, the one we always do out of here. And then I, there were two new ones that I tried. One was just a simple pulao rice which is, was really, really easy and lovely. And then another new recipe out of the book I did as well is, um, I think you've done it, is um, a burnt aubergine curry. Oh, yeah, um, that's so divine. It was really, really divine. But I needed to be quite creative because <laughs> I don't have gas anymore. I don't have a gas cooker anymore. So no open flame to, to char the aubergine. So I actually pop them into my wood burner oh my gosh that's a good <laughs> idea fire and it worked to treat so that was quite fun mm. that's a very good idea yeah. but it was all very very delicious and quite spicy we had dad reaching for the milk again <laughs> but um, everyone else coped fine it was delicious yeah sounds like you chose some nice options that all would go well together Mm, they all did go very, very nicely together. Mine was, um, I don't know if you've got this recipe book, actually, it's, but it was the egg curry from 
the Rangoon Sisters Burmese cookbook. Have you got that one? Mm, I don't know if I've got that one, but but the recipe is it's so simple. I think that growing up, I thought like a curry needed tens of spices, but actually mm. this one was. I think it's just turmeric, paprika, and maybe a bit of chili and cumin I think and that was it and it's just so simple and so easy um but such delicious flavors I would yeah very good on that mm, I love that kind of recipe me too so cooking as you know was a big part of my childhood but I'd love to hear about the food you had growing up what are some of your favorite memories well one of the a memory that sticks in my mind so vividly is I was at boarding school and my mum on our birthdays used to drive up to see us and she would arrive at school with a boot load of milk tarts. Just as many milk tarts as she could fit into the back of a car, she fitted into the back of a car and those were for all our friends to join us and it was a birth it was our form of birthday cake that she would bring for us on our birthdays and that became a tradition and it that is one of the overriding memories I have of growing up um and and food um as a young girl I also have there's another one as well can you um, just um can you just explain what a milk tart is Okay, so milk tart is essentially what you would call in the UK a custard tart. So it's um, it's a, a, a sweet pastry base with a, a cooked custard filling with traditionally with um, cinnamon sprinkled on top. Mm. Mm, there oh, my favourite. Mm, South African. Classic South African, yeah. Mm. Um, you haven't actually told me that story before, that Granny did that. That's so lovely. How come she made milk tarts and not birthday cakes? I don't really know. I think it just, it became a thing that she used to make that we all just absolutely loved. And may, maybe it started with one of my older sisters at school and, and then just carried on through them to me that that was what was requested. Maybe that was what the request was. When she asked, I'm coming up to see you for your birthday, what would you like? And maybe that's how it started, milk tarts. And then it just became a thing. I think all the friends also, I think they would have died if a birthday cake had come and not the milk tarts because <laughs> they just used to all look forward to the milk tarts. So they knew when it's your birthday, they were going to get a treat of milk tarts. Uh, and as that car drove into the school grounds, we, everyone would come running out of the house to, to the car. <laughs> <laughs> My yeah. friends used to be like that at boarding school with your cake. <laughs> oh, the chocolate the, one. The chocolate one. <laughs> They used to yeah. be excited for that, so that's quite funny. Yeah. But you oh, didn't. Just... You only made one. You didn't make a cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Funny that um, you requested milk tart because that's what Tom, my brother, requested. He didn't like birthday cake, so he used to request none, um, Granny's milk tart as well. He did, and I never forget the first time he requested it. <gasps> We thought we would leave the cinnamon. Mm, that was a. <laughs> <laughs> and 
that was the oh, biggest the mistake. <laughs> Love the cinnamon. I was, the, I think the cinnamon might be too strong a flavor for him. He just do like the bland milk tart. No, 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 yeah. no. That was a I big mistake. Yeah, very funny. Mm. Yeah, so oh. then that started to be a tradition for him for his birthdays because I don't know what it was about cake. He just it wasn't a fan. So milk tart was his birthday cat. I hadn't actually thought about that and mm. put those two together. That's so sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's such a nice um, example of cooking for love. Like if you were at boarding school, but granny could still bring you a treat and to share with your friends. It's just... Yeah, that's a really lovely story. Thank you. That's a lovely story. Yeah. Sorry, so what was your... So so another one, which is very, very different, um, was we lived close to the sea, and you could get, um, at certain times of the year, you could get licenses to collect mussels. And so we we would all go off and collect mussels off the rocks and then bring them home, and there was a whole operation of cleaning mussels and sorting mussels and then cooking the mussels and dipping them in parsley, garlic, butter. Mm. Very delicious. Very so you would delicious. steam them or cook them first and then deshell them and then dip them in the butter? Now everybody would take their, it was a big pot of mussels and you would just dive in and take one mussel at a time and and open it and take the mussel out and dip it in the butter and mm. with crusty bread and very delicious. So how many, would you do that, was that like a once a year kind of thing to do? Well, I remember we did it, we did it ourselves at home, but then we also had friends that had a beach cottage near the sea and I remember going to them and that was a whenever we went there that could that would happen um so I don't know if I'm confusing the memory or if I've got both sort of become one memory but I do remember strongly and I do know we did it I remember we for my brothers my older brother's 21st birthday muscles were on the menu and we would go you were only allowed a certain amount once a week or whenever it was that you were allowed. And we would go and get our rations, bring them home, cook them, and then my mum would freeze them And because mussels were going to be on the menu at his 21st. So we did. Oh, we used- so, special. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. We used to collect the mussels, but I think we used to also eat them ourselves with this delicious garlic butter um, sauce with crusty bread. Um, just so good yeah picking mussels and eating all together is such a nice memory of you all was eating together quite a regular thing eating together was a very big part of growing up I, I I don't remember ever not sitting around our dining room table for breakfast and for dinner every night um when the family was all at home when we were all together even you know, I was the youngest of four and all the others went off to boarding school before me. But so, if you know, when I was left at home on my own with my mum and dad, before I went off to boarding school, I would sit at the table with them. But we would always, every meal at home together, we sat around the dining room table and ate together. 
do you think that was quite an important part of forming relationships and having chats over dinner? I think that's can be yeah. some very special time. Yeah, no, definitely was, definitely was. Um, I remember one hilarious breakfast where we'd all just sat down and it was, for some reason, we were having, a, it wasn't normal, normal to have sardines on toast for breakfast. But this was, I don't know why, we were all about to sit down to our sardines on toast with melted cheese on top. Absolutely divine. And we heard this huge crash outside. And the milk van had crashed into our wall. <laughs> we all went out to see what was going on. And when we came back, the cat had eaten all our breakfast. <laughs> I didn't even know you had a cat. No. Um, but I mean, sardines on toast with melted cheese, that doesn't appear it is to be. Maybe. Well, yeah, with your fish allergy, it wouldn't, mm. but it was honestly the most delicious thing. Sardines on toast with grated cheese on top and under the grill. Mm. Very delicious. Is that a South African thing or is it? I don't know. I don't know. I've not ever heard of that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is um how many of you? Six of you all having Six that breakfast. all having that around the table for breakfast. Mm. Otherwise it was pro neutro for breakfast. Just very South African thing. I don't think you get a chance. Very weird sort of grain, really pounded grain, I think. Was that all? Fish paste on toast. Oh, I'm not, I'm not loving this fish theme. <laughs> Apart from the mussels. Mm, no, mm. mussels. Mm. Um, before I was thinking about some things you've told me about growing up, and you said you always used to fight over the chicken oysters. Is that something? It was not the chicken oysters. It was, and I don't know what the technical word for this part of the chicken is, but it was the Pope's nose. I've had someone, Andy Oliver, she talked about the Pope's nose in her off-menu episode. Um, and she called it, I think it was the, par, the Parsons, Parsons nose. Yes. It was the Parsons nose or the Pope's mm -hmm. nose. And it was such a big thing that one memory I have of my grandma, my granny Kitty, who's my dad's mum, is that Kitty came for Sunday lunch and she bought a tray of Pope's noses <laughs> so that none of us would fight over the – because Sunday lunch was roast chicken. Mm. Every Sunday lunch, that was our treat, and we all had parts of the chicken that we got that were our favourites. Mine was the drumstick. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad would, it could be a whole thing with my dad carving it beautifully. He carved so beautifully. And yeah, how we even got a look in with the Pope's nose, because he was normally, it was the carver's prerogative to get the Pope's nose. But yeah, Kitty bought us a tray of Pope's noses so that we could put what them. We all got a Pope's nose. Mm. My favorite as well. And then one year, I remember at Christmas, he had the turkeys one, and that is fluffy. 
not very nice. <laughs> no, not good at all. So you obviously have nice food memories from when you grew up, and it was all obviously a big part of growing up, eating together every night, etc. But when did you actually start cooking yourself? I only, well, I did domestic science as a subject at school. And I think any way of getting the easy route through school was my subject choice. That was my, why I did that rather than anything more difficult. And so I did a, I learned to do a little bit of cooking when I was at school, but it was really, really basics, um, basic things. And the only thing that I can really remember doing in domestic science on the cooking side was maybe learning to make the white sauce, so roux. Um, and also, I remember in one of my exams, I was set to make scotch eggs in my exam. That's a and hard, hardness. So, never mind having a soft yolk or anything like that. It was literally just boiling the egg and getting the sausage around it and putting crumbs around it and deep frying it. So, I thought I'd be super organized and get the eggs on to boil early so that I could do all the other prep and get everything else ready. And completely slipped my mind that the eggs were boiling away on the stove behind me. And I went to have a look, a check on my eggs, and I had burnt my boiled eggs. I didn't know you could burn boiled eggs, but I did. The pot was black, the eggs were black, and I could see the temperature coming towards me to check on how I was doing. And in complete panic, I opened the window and threw the eggs out the window. (laughs) Hit the pan, and then grabbed a new pan, put a couple more eggs and put it on the stove, and she came up and opened the lid and went, oh, very good. So I escaped failing my exam. But <laughs> it was very close. Well done. Ooh. I mean, knowing now what you can cook. <laughs> burning the boiled eggs. Burning the boiled eggs, that's hilarious. <laughs> but... When I, re- I don't really remember when I actually started learning to cook because I also have a memory of in my second year of university, first year I was in halls, so all our food was cooked for us. And in the second year, I was in a, essentially a bed, so it was like a, just a room with no cooking facilities. So I had a two-plate stove and a microwave. and. I remember wanting to make a stew, but not knowing even how to start. I had no recipe books or anything with me. And I just didn't even know where to begin. I went and bought meat. I went and bought veg. And I boiled the meat. I didn't even know that you needed to fry it off and just fry off everything and just slowly start the process. I went sort of around it backwards. It was dreadful. It was inedible. It was so terrible. And so I you just stuck it all in? I got a pot of water, water on and just threw the meat into the water to start boiling it. So I didn't know where to start. I didn't. And I, had, I, I it was inedible. I, I just didn't even know what I was doing. And I think I then phoned home. Mm. 
Phone my mum. Was that was that a dish from home that maybe you were wanting some comfort food or probably probably a stew that would have been something definitely that would have been on the menu at home would have been a stew of some sort casseroles stews that kind of food is what we would have every day. I remember sausage and oat casserole. That was one of my favorites. It looked terrible. It was almost grey, mm. but absolutely divine. That was on the menu once a week. It was a sausage casserole with oats. It was very delicious. Did the oats go like porridge? Or yeah. They soak up all the stock and the liquid, and, and it's, it's a real sort of stodgy one. But And the sausages are so soft from cooking for so long. In that's almost yeah, steaming them in this concoction. Can't remember what else went into it, but that was a goodie. Yeah, I've not heard of that before. Once a week, one. Yeah, we should ask, ask Granny mm. if she remembers the recipe to it. So, how did you go from boiling meat for a stew to being good enough? a good enough chef to start a catering business. I know. I think literally it was on upwards, steeply upwards from there. Mm-hmm. And in my third year of university, I moved into a flat that had a kitchen. And I, th- I think that's when I started cooking um, for myself and for Baz. Um, My dad. And, yeah your dad and and starting to experiment then and I think also coming making sure I had some recipes from home to start following recipes and not just trying to wing it with boiling meat to make a stew (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's where it it all started Mm. Mm. so when you came to the Isle of Man, you obviously moving from South Africa, having things like um, sardines on toast. Were there any like cultural shocks or like food differences when you moved moved here? Yeah, not really. There's, there's things in South Africa that we just took for granted that you could buy and just never realized you couldn't get them in the UK. Biltong, for one, um, rusks, just another thing called Cook Sisters, which it wouldn't be something that you'd buy all the time, but you would, if you felt like one, it was something that you could, you could easily buy and find. Do you mind um, just explaining what they are for those who don't know? So biltong is a dried meat, um, normally quite a good cut of meat that is just dried over, and it's heavily spiced and and left dry over time, and then it's it's sort of just a snack. Mm. Um, and the rusk is um, a dried basically a sweetened dry bread that's twice baked um it's baked as a, as a loaf to start with and then cut up and then dried for a long period of time and it's just great. Delicious, dunked, yeah. delicious dunked in tea um, mm. or coffee very very delicious 
Um, Cook Sisters are basically a, like a deep-fried donut, but with sweet sweetness, so sweet, and with a... And then they're soaked in the syrup. Soaked in a syrup. Mm. Mm. Make your teeth curl. They mm. are so sweet, but delicious. Um, so those, yes, those kind of things were definitely... I never thought I'd miss them. Um, and I never thought that they were such a big part of just having them always available and then not. You sort of realize how much you miss them. Um, certainly when we went back on holidays after that, we'd make sure we, we had our fill of all of that. As far as eating out in restaurants and things, yeah, compared to South Africa, I would say the biggest shock was not having steakhouses. We were just so used to, if we want, and really affordable to go out for a steak. It wasn't a, it wasn't a treat, really. It was just, the steakhouse was where you'd, you'd go with your mates for a, for a meal and you'd get a T-bone, you'd get a fillet, you'd get rump steak at all very affordable prices. And we, there was just no, not such a thing here when we came here, no such thing as a steakhouse. Yeah, I suppose here it's like if you're treating yourself, you go for a steak at a restaurant. Yes. It's definitely more expensive than everything yeah. else. I would just think. Potentially, the you know it's just the meat was obviously just more plentiful there and much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and hence, you couldn't have steakhouses that were. I mean, yeah, it was just where you went. We take you as kids. We take you to the steakhouse. I mean, we we couldn't really afford to eat out, so it was a treat, and that's where we take you because it was affordable. Mm. I suppose it's. Like emigrating to a new country can be really tough anyway, but I suppose you were lucky that a lot of comforting South African dishes you could make here. Mm. Um, there, there's not there's quite a big crossover in ingredients and things you wouldn't have had to, like mm. a milk tart, for example. Um, although yeah. it's not common here, you can easily make it. Whereas obviously yeah. people emigrating from other countries such as India or any Asian countries might struggle. Mm. Um, well, not anymore, but at the time mm. we moved. Yeah, for sure. There wasn't anything really in the supermarkets that we couldn't get here. I mean, it took me forever. Then I can remember the first time going to the supermarket and nothing was familiar. None of the brands were familiar. Just buying tomato sauce was stressful because I just didn't know the brands. I didn't know what to buy. I didn't know which one was the one that everyone bought or ate or was the best one. And buying and going shopping was challenging. Um, so, yeah, I remember that. That was that's the yeah. my mind. must have been mm. quite unsettling when you're in mm. a new place anyway. And then, yeah, I hadn't even thought of things like that, like not knowing what brands to buy or... Yeah, but there was most things we could get. The only thing that I couldn't get was fish paste. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. And if I asked in the supermarket, "Do you, where's the fish paste? Do you have fish paste? 
they looked at me like I'd come from another planet. It's just not something that is here. And it's it's a spread that you put on your bread or on your toast. Very, very popular in South Africa. And it really Does it come in like a tube? It's in a jar, a little jar. And it's sort of an orangey-pinky colour. Um, probably full of all sorts of terrible things, preservatives and things. That's probably why it's not available there. Um, but I wonder if there's just something that's a different name. Obviously, I don't really know because I'm allergic to fish, but it just sounds like a pate to me. It's like, can you get like a macro pate? Well, we called it fish paste, but it was actually anchovette, like an anchovette paste. We just called it fish paste. So it was made, I think it must have obviously then be made out of, from anchovies. Um, and it wasn't overly salty, though. It was just, it was really lovely, savory spread. But I, I have looked over the years, I've sort of, it's just not something that you can get here. Maybe in South African shops and maybe um, now, if you go into specialist South African shops that sell South African ingredients, they might, might be able to get it. Well, I wonder if, like, uh, Portuguese shop i know where like anchovies are from where they like can them is that portugal and spain i wonder if like a spanish deli or something would have mm. i do have another childhood memory of food i don't know if we can go back to it go on. Um, go on. going on holiday for us was a huge adventure i remember us we would we would go away for like a three week holiday and it would be a long car journey, seven or eight hour car journey. Remember packing our suitcases to go off to on this holiday. And a huge part of it was making the, what we call the pup course, which is Can you also explain how what the car configuration mm, was as well? No, it was hilarious because there were six of us. And often a mate or two would come along too. And so mum and dad would sit in the front and I would straddle the central thing between the two of them. No seatbelts seen anywhere. So I was right in the front, raised, because I was the youngest, so I got the worst seat or the one that the smallest could, could handle the best. And then there would be four or five crammed in on the back seat, all literally like sardines across the back seat. Did you have anything to lean no, on? No, no, yeah. absolutely nothing to lean on. But I mean, I just, I probably crawled around the car, annoying everybody. But anyway, mum used to make a pack course for the journey, mm. which the direct translation of pack course is road food. So, and our pack course consisted of peanut butter and crispy bacon sandwiches. Honestly, if you haven't tried it, you've got to try it. The but the most the funniest part was we'd be five minutes down the road and we'd all be saying, "Can we have our pack course, please?" And then, I mean, into an eight-hour <laughs> car journey, and we the bacon sarnies would come out. We'd still be dark. Four in the morning, we'd be setting off excitedly so that we could get to our destination before dark on dirt roads and all sorts. It was a real adventure and it was really good fun. And that is a very happy childhood memory and the bacon and peanut butter sandwiches were a big part of it. Well, I count it one of your biggest failures as a mother that I've never tried 
<laughs> bacon and peanut butter <laughs> sandwiches. Two of my favourite things. Oh no, that's the one. Definitely need to do that. Definitely yeah, to rectify that. Definitely mm. outrageous. Mm. So, as I mentioned before, we obviously both love cooking and love cooking together. What do you think it is about cooking for loved ones that you enjoy? Uh, I think what it is for me, uh, it's my way of showing people how much I love them. It's by cooking food that they love to eat and I just love I love finding out what people like and don't like and I will try and cook something that I know that they like the best that I can and with it just is I love cooking so I think that also helps and I'm not doing it as a chore I'm doing it because it's something that I love doing if I'm doing it as a chore which often can happen when you've, you know, I'll find that it's, it doesn't quite work out right because there's just a missing ingredient of love it hasn't gone into it. And it can often be just as simple as that or not reading the recipe, right? but mostly <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love cooking and it makes me happy to cook. Yeah. Mm. I think that's important is, like you say, in enjoying it, like everyone's got those midweek meals where you don't really fancy cooking, but you just got to get something on the table. Mm. But then when you're having a get together with family or friends and you've got the time to put that effort in, mm. um, you can really tell the difference in what you produce mm. and so my next question was going to be, what's your favourite thing to cook for people you love? But it sounds like you like to cook what they want. <laughs> yes, I often do. Well, I change your menu based on who's coming. Yes, for. it often will be the case. So that, but there's definitely one dish that stands out in my mind as a dish that I do love cooking, and I think it's it's one of my. It was one of my dad's favorite meals, oxtail, oxtail stew. And I just think it used to make him so happy. It was just one of those meals that if I was, if I saw oxtail at the butchers, I would buy it because I just knew if they were coming for Sunday lunch or if I would have them around for a midweek meal because I'd seen it, I just knew how much it made him happy. And who doesn't, I mean, most people absolutely love it anyway. So it's, it's, it's not a chore to cook it and it's most people enjoy it. And I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorites. Um, and I think the secret to a good oxtail is when you think it's done, you've tasted it, the meat's starting to come off the bone. It's not ready. It needs at least another hour in the oven. Temperature turned right down to 140, 120 with the lid back on and just leave it for another hour until that meat is literally falling off the bone. 
Mm, your oxtail stew is, I think it's one of my favourite things as well. I get very excited when it's on the mm. menu. Can you um, talk us through, you've already enticed us with the falling off the bone. Mm. Um, and I can just, I can literally smell it as you were talking about it mm. just then. But can you talk us through your recipe? It's an Ottolenghi recipe that I use. Mm. It's one that I found. I've been through various recipes. Obviously, Ottolenghi's um, not been around for forever. But this one I found is an absolute winner. And it's, I think the secret also, another secret to it is the browning of the meat. So it's a, and it's just, you've just got to be patient as well. Don't overcrowd the pan when you're browning the meat. And you've got to have the pot on really, really, really hot. Really, really, really good caramelization of the, of the meat. Brown it all. And then, um, and then the veg go in. Carrots and onions go in. Or shallots, actually, not onions. Carrots and shallots go in. And they, they brown for a while. Um, and then red wine goes in and it's got two, almost reduced to, to nothing, the red wine. And then the meat back in and then just herbs out the garden, whatever's, whatever I can find out of the garden. I get, I've got rosemary and oregano in time. So I'll, I'll pick that out the garden. I'll, I'll tie it all together in a, with string so that it doesn't all fall apart in the pot. And I'll pop that in with the oxtail. Tin tomatoes, go and chop tin tomatoes, go in and cinnamon sticks, good seasoning, salt and pepper, a few bay leaves out the garden, fresh bay leaves picked off the tree, and a cartouche on top, which is a very fancy word for just a bit of wax paper or grease paper <laughs> scrunched up and wet and put on top to keep the moisture in, and a good heavy, a good pot is also good. A good heavy pot. I've got a beautiful copper pot that I always use for my oxtail. And then into the oven at 180 for a couple of hours. Then I'll drop the temperature to 160 maybe for another hour or so. And then that secret last hour. Then I think everything's just about done. Oh, sounds mm. so divine. And it's nothing groundbreaking. It's just, yeah, like you say, those secret tips, mm. those extra bit of love. Like, mm-hmm. you easily just brown the meat a bit, chuck it all in, not really do it properly, mm. and it'll taste okay. Mm. But the to make it really good is taking love and care and time, mm. brown things properly, give it enough time in the oven, and, yeah, you can really tell the difference. There's one change I've made to that recipe, and it's actually because of you. I used to painstakingly peel the and the cap the orange because it also has orange rind that goes in with it when it's baking. And I saw you just cut our whole orange up into strips, fat strips and stick it in when you did it. So that's what I do now. So the whole <laughs> orange goes in in big fat strips and I think of you every time I do that. So <laughs> that's because I am lazy. <laughs> But also the orange rind just disintegrates and it's really hard to fish it out at the end. You don't want to chew on orange rind mm. when you have your oxtail. So it's actually much easier to take it out at the end when it's in big chunks, the whole orange. And then the juice of the orange is going into the stew I like as well. the juice of the orange in there. Yeah, it's delicious. It's really delicious. Mm. So, mm. 
So you asked me, I mean, you've asked me one thing I like to cook for people. That is impossible to only give you one. Oxtail is the one that popped into my head first. Mm-hmm. But one of my new favorite meals to cook for people is my Croatian dish, which is called a cake. Yeah, please explain. Yes. So this is something from the Croatian side of the family, which has nothing to do with me, but to do with Kate's dad, my husband Basil. Mum was born in Croatia. And so we've been to Croatia over and over and over again. And one of the fabulous meals that you can order on a menu there, and you have to order it the day before, is called a pekka, which essentially is a metal dome that goes over a pan that you put onto a barbecue. Um, and it has to have fire bricks because you have to heat up the fire bricks first and then you put this pan on, put this metal dome over, and then you cover it with coals and pray. Because you've got no oven temperature, you've got no guideline, you don't know if you your cut of meat is... Every time it's different there. The meat in Croatia is very different to what we used to. So you don't know what your meat's like. And it's just literally, that is cooking with love. And and being able to just gauge the meat. You can't ever be in a hurry when you're making it because it just won't work. You've got to just have the whole day to do it too because you can never leave leave it for more than half an hour without checking it. And it's a whole procedure to taking the coals off, lifting that lid, which is like opening a present at Christmas time. So exciting. You don't know what's going to be inside when you open the lid. Open the lid and you say, uh-oh, still got a long way to go. So you add a few more coals onto the top the next time you put the lid back on. And you just keep checking. And it can take up to four, five, six hours, depending on what you're cooking under there. Yeah, so what does go in a pecker? So traditionally, from what we've learnt by eating there, it can be mixed meat, mainly lamb. Um, there can be goat. Um, which it's is like meat. a stew, or is it a what is it? What is it? So it is. It's like a stew, but with big cuts of meat. Um, that are very, it's all very well seasoned before it goes into the pan. It's all one layer in a big, wide, shallow pan. Raw, all the meat goes in raw. First of all, that's marinated overnight in sort of olive oil and um, wine and garlic and seasoning. And another main ingredient that goes in is peeled potatoes, um, carrots, and peppers so that's those are the main ingredients that go in with meat of your choice mainly lamb and potentially pork as well can go in with it um and that's it you put a little bit of wine in but all the juices from the meat slow cooking come out into that pan and there's garlic as well garlic and herbs out of the garden in Croatia. Um, so that's mainly what it is. I've done it also, um, a spin on, well, another traditional meat that they cook under the, under the dome is octopus. 
mm. um, which I have done in Croatia when we've been there. And I've also done it here on the Isle of Man when our fishing boats during lockdown, our fishing boats were bringing all their catches in and we would go down to the to the harbour and see what they had. And I, I managed to get hold of a couple of octopus then. And I did peck here on the Isle of Man with octopus, which was absolutely delicious. I haven't had an octopus one yet. I'm very mm. excited to have one, but um, I'm so I'm so glad you brought up pecker because it's one of my absolute favourite dishes, and like you say, a real feeling of love when you have it. Um, I've got such fond memories of ordering it in Croatia and sitting around and it coming um, at the restaurant and having just the biggest feast and it's such good family time chatting around a pecker pot is mm. um was such special times for us um and there's always a bit of bread on the side that you dip in when you think you're full you've always got room for dipping a bit of bread into the pecker pot to soak mm. up the gravy juices mm. um yeah, and now that you're making them as well, it's even extra special. You've um, even imported a pecker lid to the Isle of Man, especially to be able to make them, and built a outside oven, which is the size of my downstairs living room, um, at your in your garden to be able to cook pecker. So exactly. that is the ultimate cooking for love. Mm. It really mm. is. Okay. What do you cook for yourself for cooking for love? You've talked a lot about what you make for other people, and I think you are one of the best cooks I know, and you cook very well for everyone else. But is there anything you cook for yourself when you feel like you want to treat yourself a bit? I think when I know I'm I'm not cooking for anyone else, it's just me in the evening. I will cook myself chicken wings. Mm. <laughs> I just love chicken wings. And nine times out of ten, there will be no sides. There'll be nothing else. It will literally be a bowl of chicken wings. And I just love them. I love getting my hands dirty. I love chewing the bones. And I love that I'm on my own. Nobody can see me. Beautiful glass of wine. And a bowl of chickens. Treat themselves. <laughs> that sounds like me as well. I've got such a guilty like pleasure of eating chicken on my own. Like mm. no one can see you, you can just get it all over your face. And <laughs> having chicken yeah, because mm. same with like a chicken carcass as well. Mm. Like having a roast chicken carcass and just being able to eat that on your own is yeah, guilty pleasure. <laughs> and we grew up like that, like eating chicken with our hands and getting each bit off the bone. And then it's funny because, like, my husband JP just yeah just won't like won't eat like that. He'll only get what he can off his with his knife and fork, and that's it. Yeah, it's just yeah. how it's like different families, different ways of eating. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I really want chicken wings now. 
so we've kind of gone through it already, but I'll ask the question I'm planning to ask everyone, which is what does cooking for love mean for you? For me, it means enjoying and loving what you're cooking. And then the result is always good. It means oodles of flavor, beautifully presented, tasty, delicious food, platters groaning with crispy pork belly, juicy slices of rare rib of beef, smothered in gremolata, slow roasted lamb with chimichurri, crispy roast potatoes, colorful sides, loud chatting and laughter around the table, and mopping up the juices with homemade bread. Oh, that's so beautiful. Mm. Makes me want to cry. <laughs> that's what it is to me. Yeah, just when you said, like, chatter around the table, just mm. your food. I can picture the rib of beef with gremolata and on the platter and us all bringing it to the table and crowding around and, it, mm. like, food in our family is just such a catalyst for those good times. And I think the amount we and you like care about how good the food is just for a family meal really makes that difference. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, Cookie, <laughs> so much for being my first guest. I've loved it on Cooking for Love. It's been quite fun. It's been really good fun. I've loved sort of thinking back on things and thinking of childhood food memories and, yeah, I've loved it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, there's a few stories I hadn't heard before. Mm. Thank you. Love you. Love you too. Well, thank you for listening to Cooking for Love and I hope you enjoyed this first episode with my amazing mother. Um, I am just starting out on this podcasting journey so it would be amazing if you subscribed, reviewed and shared the podcast wherever you have listened to it. You can also follow me on at Cooking for Love podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Also if you'd like to share your Cooking for Love stories with me you can email me at cookingforlove at gmail.com and I may share them in future episodes. I hope you've had a great week and I will see you next time. Bye!